Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Dr. Rafal Shushat. Dr. Shushat received his MA in Jewish philosophy from Hebrew University and holds a PhD in Jewish philosophy from Bar Ilan University with a dissertation titled The Process of Redemption in the Writings of the Vilna Gaon. Rabbi Shushat earned his smicha, rabbinic ordination, from the Jerusalem rabbinate under Rabbis Avraham Shapiro and Mordechai Eliyahu. He also received a second rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Leib Baron from Montreal, Canada. Rabbi Dr. Shushat is a noted lecturer, author, and educator. He has received numerous awards, including the Minister of Education's Prize and the Israel Academy of Science Grant for Jewish Studies. Dr. Shushat currently serves as a lecturer in Jewish philosophy at the School for Basic Jewish Studies at Bar Ilan University. And today we'll be discussing the fascinating life, writings, and thought of Rabbi Chaim Velazhin. Uh, Dr. Shushat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, I have to say that in Israel, we pronounce our name as Shochat. Oh, okay. Okay. Originally it was Shochat. In America, it's... But in Canada, it was uh, Shushat because the CH comes out like the French. Okay. So I got it right as a Canadian. That's that's fine. Which I am um, in origin. Okay. Um, Rabbi Dr. Shochat, um, just by way of background, um, the Vilna Gaon, Rabchaim Velazhin, the years that they lived, leading up to our initial question, how often did Rabchaim Velazhin visit his uh, master, mentor, the Vilna Gaon, and what records exist of those meetings? Uh, okay, I mean, Chaim Velazhin passes away. Uh, we just had his yurt site. It was in Sivan of um, of uh, of 1821. So um, we actually also commemorated two years ago, um, 200 years since his passing. And uh, the Vilna Gaon passed away in 1797, but uh, most of their lives overlapped. According to the the literature, which is called the Hanhagot or the Sheiltot, um, he actually tells a student that he met the Vilna Gaon, when he was 19 years old originally. Uh, the meetings seem to have been sporadic. It's not that he spent a lot of time in Vilna. He actually lived in Belazhen, but he, when he would come, he would spend a few days with the Vilna Gaon, come back maybe a month or two later and do the same. So this was an ongoing relationship during his life, which, as I said, uh, he first met him in 19, but I don't know at what age he became closer to him because it doesn't actually say in the literature. And the the question in general of students of the Vilna Gaon is very, um, it's not a clear question. How do you define a student? Well, the way I define a student in the introduction to the Shuchan Aruch Orachaim with the Graz Perush, so his sons, Avraham and Yehuda Leib, they have a list there of 10 students of the Gra and uh, another three from Shklov, which also seem to be in that category. So since they consider them students, I consider them students. Students means people who are close enough to the Gra that they knew him in a little bit more intimate fashion than other people did, meaning they had studied with him. We know that the Gra took in students in the last 
17 years of his life, um, something he didn't do previously. I mean, people would meet with him, but he liked studying by himself. He liked being autodeduct. He liked closing the blinds and keeping away from the rest of the world. Um, but it seems that he he felt the shlichut in the last 17 years of his life. And these students who are mentioned in um, the introduction to the Shulchan Aruch of, uh, uh, with his perush by his sons are probably those people who spent this time with him in the last 17 years. And at that time also put together some of his sfarim, for instance, um, the perush on the uh, Yerushalmi's Ra'im called Shnot Eliyahu, which was put together during that time with those meetings of the Gra. So why is there a perception um, that Rav Chaim Velazhin was a main or perhaps the main student of the Vilna Gaon, that he would come to him with hundreds of questions which the Gaon would answer and the, these famous trips that, that he had? Is that found in historical literature? Well, first, in, first of all, in, in that same introduction by the Talmudim of the Gra, they talk about Rav Chaim, they call him Rishon HaTalmidim, okay. which of course is a double anton. It means the first, and of course Rishon from the word Rosh sounds like also the head of. So the sons refer to him as such. And yeah, I can also tell you that in the, the introduction of Yisrael of Shklob, who was a very young uh, student of the of Vilna Gon, who probably only knew him in the last six months of his life, and that's why he's not on that list. Um, he writes in his introduction to Pata Shulchan, when he talks about Chaim Volozhin, he mentions how people would speak to Chaim Volozhin before they made Aliyah to Israel with the Talmud, this, the students of the Gra. In other words, Chaim Volozhin was seen as the more elderly student and Talmud Chacham among the group, and people felt the need to be in touch with him after the Gra's passing. So he was sort of like, and I would say Reb Chaim also saw himself this way in the introduction to the first published book by the, well, the, I shouldn't say the first, the second. The first published book that we have at the Vilna Gaon is uh, the, the Parish on Mishle, which comes up uh, literally a few months after he passes away, about six months after he passes away, by Menachem Mendel of Shklov. The second book, though, is Shnot Eliyahu which comes out about a year later in Tavshin, in Tavshin, in Tavkuf Nun Tet. In the introduction to Shnot Eliyahu, Rav Chaim Volozhin wanted to write an introduction and it came in late <laughs> to the publisher. So the publisher put it in the second Hotza'ah, the second edition, but it was also published in another place. And in this introduction, Rav Chaim Volozhin calls himself a student of the Vilna Gaon, who was able to draw waters from his well. I don't know if you remember, but in the in his famous drasha, when he founds the Yeshiva in Volozhin, um, he actually apologizes and said, people call me a student of the Vilna Gaon and I'm not even worthy, whatever. But at this point in his life, <laughs> the year after Vilna Gaon passes away, he realizes it's not time for humility. He feels he has to rise to the occasion because he knows that he has to build the yeshiva in order to strengthen uh, Jewry in Lithuania. So right away, he takes the appellation of being a student of the Vilna Gaon very seriously already within that year after the passing of the Gro. 
Did the Vilna Gaons, you, you mentioned now some of the, the earlier works uh, that were published by the Vilna Gaon after his death. Was Chaim Velazhin involved in any of the publications of the Vilna Gaon's writings? He was in the sense that he, some of the, um, of the introductions are written by Chaim Velazhin. We have four to five introductions of Chaim Velazhin to various books. Uh, the, the most popular one is his introduction to Sefret Nitsniuta of the Vilna Gaon, where there he gives a whole biography of Vilna Gaon. That was actually the last Hakdama that he wrote in his lifetime, um, two b- books of the Vilna Gaon. And then, of course, I've mentioned Shnot Eliyahu, and also on Be'erei Zohar, we have a few Hakdama of Chaim Velozhin to these uh, to these books. Um, a lot of the books were published by Avraham, the son of the Vilna Gaon, and after Avraham, his son, Yaakov Moshe of Slonim, received the manuscripts. Moving on, as you mentioned before, the, the yeshiva of Volozhin that was founded by um, Chaim Volozhin. Um, why did he create that yeshiva? Um, what was different from it from that in, from that yeshiva from other learning institutions that existed at that point? And um, can we say that the Volozhin yeshiva is a prototype of the yeshiva? Yeshiva world, the yeshivas that we have that exist today. Right. By the way, the Volozhin yeshiva, like all the yeshivas in Chutzlaretz, even though we always call them by the name of the place, they all had Hebrew names. So the Volozhin yeshiva, actually, after the passing of Rabbi Chaim, was named Eitz Chaim in his memory. And by the way, the Eitz Chaim yeshiva in the old city of Yerushalayim was also named Eitz Chaim because of the Volozhin yeshiva in, um, in Volozhin. Um, so all the Talmudim of the, of the Gra, like, uh, like Menachem Mendelishklov, like Chaim Volozhin, like even some, even the son of the Gra, Avram Benagra, they all talk about in some of their Hagdamot, what they call, they call this the lowest generation, where they feel that they're, I wrote an article about what I call the crisis in Torah study. Um, in that generation, the feeling was that people were leaving Torah study, and I, they started writing this even before the rise of the Hasidic movement. There was a feeling that, remember, uh, let me put this a little bit into historical perspective. You know, you have a lot of books that they they write about Gedolim in the past, and they say when he was five years old, he started studying Mishnah. And then when he was 10 years old, he knew all the Mishnayot by heart. By the time he was 15, he knew half the Shas by heart. So you have these descriptions of prior, child protégés uh, who had these, you know, talented children. And I always say when I read these biographies, I believe every one of them. Because in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was no free schooling. You know, if you were... You went to Cheder until the age of 13, and then after that, you were sent out to work, because if you didn't work, there was no money in the family, etc. So to take a child, and for the community to put money into that child and give him an education after the age of uh, 13, if he was not a child prodigy, they would have not put the money into them. So only when they saw the kids were talented at a young age, did they put the money into this. So... uh, So as I said, there weren't really a lot of people out there, getting back to our topic, who were able to give up 
uh, what I would say, all the uh, material aspects of this world in order to study Torah, because that's really what it involved. When the Mishnah says, and that's Dark Torah, the way of Torah is that you have to, you know, drink water and eat bread. Unfortunately, in many uh, situations, that was uh, correct. Even my own uh, rabbi, Rabbi Leib Baron, who studied in the Mir uh, and in Baranovich between the wars in the 20th century, which is much, much later in Lithuania, he also says that there was no, the school didn't, you know, the Baranovich yeshiva did not have, and even the Mir did not really have a dining room. So you had to eat by families, what they called Yiddish Essenteg. You know, you were so, you had, there was a schedule, which families you would eat by. And what could you do? If there was a mistake, the family didn't know about it, you didn't get the meal <laughs> that day. So, I mean, it was not uh, easy to be a Ben Torah. They say that, again, in the 20th century, Rav Chaim Ozer Grzynski, who was uh, one of the leading rabbis in Vilna between the wars, he used to say, um, when I see a handicapped Jewish woman, I stand up because I know that she's going to marry a Talmud Choch. Because the other women wanted guys who had money. <laughs> so, but I mean, this is the way it was. You know, you had, it was a Mesirut Nefesh. It was, you really had to be determined to study Torah. And definitely in the time of Chaim Volozhin. Now, the Volozhin Yeshiva was there in the, in the mind of Chaim Volozhin, and I think in the reality too to create a new type of Torah scholar, to make Torah something which is the young people would be interested to attract them to make it what we call an Ivy League school. We would call them the jargon of today, where people, where you get the top scholars from around the country, not only the ones studying to be a rabbi, but the top scholars from around the country who really want to embrace the Torah and become knowledgeable, and then what they do with it, they do with it. When I studied Merkaz Rav Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, Rav Shapir also was of the same mindset. We study Torah Lishma. You want to study for smicha, you want to become a teacher, you can do that in parallel. <laughs> but in the Yeshiva, we study Torah Lishma for its own, for its own sake. So, which of course, Rav Chaim, as you know, um, the whole fourth part of Nefesh Chaim, he talks about this question of Torah Lishma. The whole yeshiva was based on this idea. You study Torah for its own sake because it develops you as a human being, as a Jew, as a spiritual person. And uh, this is, you know, this is the the only way to connect uh, to God and to the higher levels of life that we try to reach. So, um, so definitely the yeshiva had a very, I said, um, tried to raise the bar of what was expected from Yeshivot, and I think it did that successfully. When you see the building, by the way, it's not such a large building. You know, it's not the Ponovich Yeshiva, which can hold 1,000 uh, Talmudim, but the idea of bringing a few hundred Talmudim together at that time was a major achievement. You know, very often Yeshivot were just housed in synagogues, like the Hadarim were housed in synagogues. Eventually, of course, the Volozhin Yeshiva under the Nitziv, they even have daily meals. And, uh, and a dormitory, something, of course, which develops much, much later in the end of the uh, 19th uh, century. Uh, what else did you ask? Because I don't remember. I, I asked if, if, if the uh, yeshiva that Rafaim founded was a prototype for yeshiva today, and then we can go on to as well, what was the initial curriculum of the yeshiva under Rafaim Velazhin? 
Okay. Um, was it a prototype to today? I would say yes, specifically because the yeshivot is until today really copied the Lithuanian yeshiva. All the, the yeshivot in Lithuania um, really followed after the um, after the prototype of the Volozhin yeshiva. The Volozhin yeshiva was very similar. I mean, there's a whole book written about it by Shaul Stamfer. The development of the Lithuanian yeshiva, and he discusses their curriculum. Um, but in general, I would say the curriculum was not very far off from what we know of a yeshiva today, where you study Talmud is, of course, the main uh, source of study, both um, in depth, biyun, and also to cover ground. Um, Parsha Shavu is studied. Um, in the literature of the Sheilto, there are things brought there which was not clear whether it was in the Shiva or not. For instance, Chaim Volozhin, he does say, let's say, to study Talmud together with the Rosh, which means to study Talmud with its halachic application. That's what he means by studying it with the Rosh. We also find another place where it says to study with the Ran, but that's the same idea, right? Two, um, two uh, giants who... Uh, summarized, I would say, the application of the Talmud halachically. Um, so this idea of Torah la halacha, studying Torah, in order to apply to the halacha, or understanding the process, was very important for Rav Chaim. Uh, we also find that um, the students of the Gra and Rav Chaim himself, also they say to study the Shuchan Aruch with the Be'ur HaGra, the commentary of the Vilna Gon, because it brings the sources. Because Rav Chaim thought it was wrong to study halacha without its sources. The whole idea of a scholar is that you want to understand the sources. You want to understand the connection. So the halacha is to remind you of the process and not instead of the process. Rav Chaim is quoted of saying that people say that studying halacha um, is like like, um, eating the fish without the spices. And I say it's like eating the spices without the fish. (laughs) So... Because the real thing is to understand the sources and the halakha is just to uh, basically summarize it for you to understand where you arrived uh, to. So yes, it was definitely the prototype. There were some changes in the prototype. As you know, the Musar movement of Israel Salant, they added more of what we call ethical works in the, um, in the syllabus of the yeshiva. There was probably some study of ethical works in the, the Volosian Yeshiva, but it was very, very uh, minute within the um, curriculum of the Yeshiva. Uh, Rav Chaim does write also in his Shiltot, I have it in my book, um, he says that a person should have a basic understanding of the Zohar, and he actually says to study the book Sha'are Ora by Joseph Chikatila as an introduction in order to have a basic understanding of the Zohar. But in general, Kabbalah was something which was taught to individuals in the Volozhin Yeshiva. It wasn't an official part of the curriculum, but we know there were individuals who came uh, to study this. Even Rabbi Eliyahu Rogler, who came to the Yeshiva to study these things uh, with Chaim of uh, Volozhin. But the curriculum was a Talmud curriculum, and it also, it probably, also he he mentioned studying Tanakh with Mitzudat Sion, so probably that might have been part of the curriculum too, and definitely Parashat Shavua and some Musar, I would say. And, and these were topics that Rav Chaim himself taught? 
when we talk about Chumash, not Zohar, not Kabbalah, but he, he was a Magid Shir in the yeshiva? I'm assuming, but there are, you know, you're asking me difficult questions. Um, this actually has to be studied much more closely. Uh, I assume so. In general, the Rosh Hashiva uh, is slightly different than a Magid Shiur. And I assume there are also there are other there were for sure other rabbanim in the yeshiva, and so um, I assume that Reb Chaim played a central role, probably at his younger age more than his uh, later years. But he was definitely there because the yeshiva literature that we have were all written in the last years of his life. Questions that people asked him, which means that he was approachable. What was Reb Chaim Velazhin's attitudes towards the Hasidic movement? to the Hasidic leaders, and how or why did that differ uh, from the attitude of his teacher, the Vilna Gaon? Okay, uh, that's, um, it's a complicated uh, a question, um, story, but uh, I will try to make it as, as simple as possible. I've written quite a bit on these uh, issues. During the Vilna Gaon's time, um, there was real animosity between the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim. A lot of literature has been written about this, specifically by historians. I wrote an article on this, which is still pending publication. I think I wrote it eight years ago. So um, that happens sometimes. But um, the animosity was by many reasons. Um, some, uh, I always say, uh, following Chaim Hillel ben Sasson, the historian, that there was a difference between how the leaders in Lithuanian Jewry saw the problem and how the Vilna Gaon saw the problem. For the leadership, it was a political problem. Remember, the Hasidic movement started their own Bateknesset, their own synagogues. They started, they had their own Shechita. They had their own Sidur, the Sachari, which was actually, in the city abroad, there was uh, Beit Knesset. There was a shul who David Nusachari, but these were specifically Kabbalists, not regular run-of-the-mill uh, people. And it's interesting that in the first um, harem, uh, or excommunication against the Hasidim in uh, 1772, so in the city abroad, the main thing they mention is the fact that how dare they David Nusach Sfarn. This is only for the elite who study Kabbalah. It's not supposed to be for everybody, but that's their main argument in the city of Rome. Uh, in general, it seems that the first harem was not taken as seriously as the second one. The second one around 1781, that's the one where most of the communities in Lithuania signed on the dotted line. 1772, there was less feeling that it was necessary, but the Gras signed both times. The Gras problem with the Hasidim was less political in my opinion, but it, more, like, it was more um, ideological. Um, but I, I'd like to talk more about Rukhayim Velozhin, but about the girl, what we know in his letter that he wrote towards the end of his life against the Hasidim, um, certain issues like the, their issue of teaching everybody that God is everywhere and in everything, that both Rav Chaim and, uh, both Rav Chaim and the Graz, and Rav Chaim spells it out in his Nefesh Chaim, he says this is not proper to teach, um, ordinary people such things because it's very confusing when you say God is in everything. I mean, if God is in everything, then why can't I study Torah in the, in the washroom? God's in everything, no? Why can't I daven to this table? Why does it have to be in a big Knesset 
towards Yerushalayim. God is everywhere and everything. So it can be very confusing for somebody who doesn't understand the uh, the fine details of Kabbalistic ideas. So sometimes ideas can like this can uh, bring people to pantheism and things like that. And, and Rav Chaim and the Gra also was not so happy about this idea. Teach everybody that God is everywhere and everything. And there's a reason it's in the Zohar and not in the Talmud. Um, other things that they had a problem with Hasidim was, I would say, the relationship to the study of Torah. Um, but again, different Hasidic groups saw things differently. Like in Chabad, the study of Torah is very central. Where we're Chabad, our Litvak Hasidim, <laughs> they're in Belarus, which is exactly where Chaim Volozhim was. Harleen were also Litvak Hasidim. But other Hasidic groups, in uh, let's say, in other parts of Poland, you can see sometimes when you read the the Mikorot uh, that uh, even in, in the, the in the Magi that he says that sometimes you should take a break from studying Torah because Torah Lishma is thinking about godliness, etc. Whereas Rav Chaim says you don't take a break from Limut Torah. That is Torah Lishma. That is your connection to God. You don't need the break. So there there are a lot of things um, uh, of differences between. But I have to say that the the feelings of enmity, the, the fights, had stopped during the time of Chaim Volozhin. Chaim Volozhin even welcomed Hasidic students in his yeshiva, um, but the ideological issues persisted. And we can find them in all, basically every shar, every gate of Nefesh Chaim, there is some issue which he brings up uh, with a Hasidim from an ideological point of view, but he was very tolerant in a day-to-day uh, point of view. And, and these students who were Hasidim were given the freedom, were allowed to practice um, their Hasidut uh, as they saw fit in, in well, Yeshiva religion? I'm not sure exactly what it means to practice their Hasidut. When the Yeshiva, they daven with everybody at the Yeshiva. Whether they privately did Nusach Svarn was up to them, but the Yeshiva daven Nusach Ashkenaz. Okay. I, I wasn't, when, when I came to Israel, the yeshivot I came to were Nusach Asfard. I privately dove in Nusach Ashkenaz, but the, but the yeshiva was Nusach Asfard. I mean, that, that's not uh, unusual. And about filling on, on uh, Cholomoy, well, the girl also said not to put on filling on Cholomoy. So <laughs> he says that he, that's the way he understood the Sukhya and the Talmud, not necessarily according to the Zohar. So, I mean, that was not an issue uh, either. Did they wear... Um, the Gartel, I don't know, uh, but I assume if they did, I don't think, uh, again, Rav Chaim was very tolerant. The students knew, though, that he was opposed. So I assume that they were, um, I don't know, um, relatively quiet about it. Of course, Rav Chaim had a grandson who became a Koyden of Chosidim and married a woman from Koyden of Chosidim. And we have in the Shiltot literature an interesting uh, uh, part there. Where it says, when the student says, Amar Rabbeinu, a rabbi, I mean Reb Chaim, said to a family member that he had who inclined to the Hasidim of today, because remember, Hasidut, we've had Hasidut in our history in other different forms too. So he said three things. I want you to keep three things. Number one, study the Gemara and its pilpul, which means its intricacies. And that should be the main worship before the Holy One, Blessed Be. Secondly, keep all the laws of the Talmud. 
And three, don't talk about the grah. <laughs> but the first two also sees a little bit how he saw Hasidut, that he was afraid that they didn't spend enough time in the study of Talmud. And he was also afraid that maybe they were a little bit lax in the keeping of mitzvot. Remember, he blames them for not davening at the right times, which we know for sure was a problem in the, you know, early Hasidism. Of course, even today, if you need a minyan on Shabbat at 11 o'clock in the morning, you go to Meir Sharim and you'll find one, or B'nai Brak, it's not a problem among the Hasidim. What are the Hanhagot writings of Rav Chaim? What do they include? Okay, the the Hanhagot writings, which are nicknamed the Sheiltot, which is a a term used by Eliyahu Landau, who is a direct descendant of the Vilnagon, which basically is Aramaic for questions, these were questions that the students at the Volozhin Yeshiva asked Reb Chaim probably in the last three years of his lifetime. Why do I la- say the last three years? Because I know you asked me this question too. The book Keter Rosh, which was probably the most popular collection of these questions, uh, was public, um, according to the book, was written three years before Reb Chaim passes away somewhere around 1817, about four years before he passes away. And that's what it actually says that on the book, Tafkufay and Zayn, it was meaning it was the hand, the, the handwriting was in Tafkufay and Zayn, but of course it was printed much later in around 1910. So, and Ketorosh is this collection by Rabbi Asher um, Ashkenazi Akoin, uh, written down by his uh, grandson, uh, Ashra, uh, Ashra Cohen was also related to Liao Landau, uh, the one who uh, also published it separately. And uh, this is a co- one of the early collections that we have of the um, questions that were asked to Chaim Belozhin. The book that I put out in uh, 2021, which is called Conversations of Chaim Belozhin with the Students of Yeshiva, is all the collections of these questions that were asked. We, f- uh, we found about six different collections most of them were published, one of them was not, and I actually used the one which was not because it was the longest one, contained the most questions, and one of the questions was actually three months before the passing of Rav Chaim. So some of these questions are interesting because, you know, Nefesh Chaim is a difficult book. <laughs> you really need to be a scholar, but the questions t- touch on all different aspects of Jewish life, so it's more approachable, and uh, it gives you more of an idea of Rav Chaim in my What what exactly is the concept, in, at least in simple terms, of Torah Lishma that was articulated in Nefesh Hachaim? Is it understood correctly by lay people, just just learning Torah for its own sake? Is there something more than that in that concept of Torah Lishma? Rashi interprets Torah Lishma on the Talmud as learning Torah for its own sake. And th- that really is a simple meaning. You know, the, um, there was a, um, Rav Pinchas of Polotsk, who was one of the, um, like he was one of the Rebbes <laughs> of the Grudd's children. And Alan Nadler made a, made a, wrote a whole book about him in the faith of the Mitnagim. So he says, when we say Torah Lishma, it's not Torah Lishmo. <laughs> it's not like the Hasidim say that you have to think about God while you're studying Torah. When you're studying Torah, you're connecting to God. So it's Torah Lishma, the Shem HaTorah, for the sake of Torah. For Abchaim, 
the studying Torah is not just an intellectual exercise. If the Torah is the word of God, then through my mind, I'm connecting to the word of God, which means I'm connecting to God. Tikkun Zohar, the Zohar says that Kuchabrichu Israel the Oraita Chadhu. God, Israel, and the Torah are all interconnected. What does that mean? What it means is the Torah is the word of God, and the Jewish people are the people that God chose to keep the Torah. It's an interconnected as a process. So when the Jew studies the word of God, they are now connecting to God's will, and that's connecting to God. For Abchaim, as for instance, um, in the book Torah Lishma, which was written by Rabbi Nachum Lam, Norman Lam, years ago, already in the 70s, it was his doctorate. So he mentions already that the connection to Torah for Abchaim is a mystical connection. It goes beyond the intellectual exercise of studying Torah. The intellectual exercise is what we do when we study Torah. We study Torah intellectually, but simultaneously, it is creating a metamorphosis within our soul because we're connecting to the source of the Torah, which is God. What we what was sometimes called almost unio mystico. It's, um, it's, a, it's a form of vekut. It's a form of clinging to God. And this happens through the mind. We have, by the way, a source for this in the Zohar. At the beginning of Tikkunei Zohar, the Zohar talks about Gilui Eliyahu Derech Sechel, which means the revelation of Elijah through your mind. Now, we knew in the Talmud that the Talmud talks a lot about the, the revelation of Elijah. How exactly it happened, I don't know. The Talmud talks about Rabbi Shulam ben Levi bumping into Eliyahu Navi. The Zohar says that sometimes you bump into Eliyahu Navi not as an individual, but through your mind. So it's like a level of perception. So this is sort of similar to Rav Chaim. Rav Chaim really believed that you could even get Ruach HaKodesh just by studying Torah and connecting to the Torah. We find a very unusual statement of Rav Chaim in the Shiltot literature, in the handwriting, by the way, of Yosef Zundel of Salant, who was very close with Rav Chaim. And uh, he talks about that when you are studying Torah, and you've gotten to a point where you feel that you're studying Torah Lishma. What is Torah Lishma? Torah Lishma means that you're not doing it because you want to be smart, because you want people to, to call you such a, a great rabbi. You get to that moment of purity of thought. <laughs> Or you're just involved in the sugya of Torah and you're not thinking about any, anything else. So when you when you get to that point, so Rav Chaim says, you can actually ask the Torah a question. Because the Torah is the word of God. It's almost like, um, it, it's basically a level where you can ask the Torah a question. And he says, you think of the question and the first answer that pops into your mind at that point, that's the Torah giving you an answer. So Abhaim thought that this was a potent moment. If you felt that you connected that much to the Torah, even the Torah will help you. Because it's, it will give you a moment of Ruach HaKodesh. So I don't know if everybody understood Shardal that way of Nefesh HaKhaim, but definitely for Abhaim, it's, uh, it's, there's some, there, it's almost a mystical experience which 
simultaneously transcends the intellectual exercise which you are doing at the same time. It's happening in your You're not leaving the intellectual journey. That's right. It's in your subconscious mind. You might be aware of it every now and then. But for Abhaim, I would, if I had to say it in simple lingo, when you connect to the Torah, the Torah is dialoguing with you. And then you start discovering things, what he calls a chidush. Abhaim says that anybody who gets a, a real chidush in the Torah, it says in, in the Zohar that they inherit all these worlds, upper worlds. Because you have now connected to the upper world. You think you just came up with an intellectual idea, but no, you're interacting with the Torah. So he really sees this as something sort of metaphysical happening at the same time as, as the Limu Torah. Did, did Rafaim Velazhin ever consider it journeying, going to the land of Israel like other students of the Grah? And why didn't he make that journey? Well, first of all, it's quite unique that the students, that almost all the students of the Gra, who were still alive in 1808, 1809, eventually made Aliyah. Uh, in my book, um, um, A World um, Hidden in Dimensions of Time, Torah Tagulav, the, where I talk about the redemption of the building on, the, the theories of redemption. I mentioned that out of the um, 15 people who I consider students of the building on based on the list, of the sons, 15, 16 people, only about 10 of them were still alive at that time. And out of the 10, about seven made Aliyah. I mean, it's quite, I have to remember exactly, six, seven. I mean, you have major names like Menachem Mendel of Shklov, who really was very close to the Vilnagon. As I said, he puts out the first book, which is the um, Mishle, which the Vilnagon dictated to him, but he wrote in his uh, language. He also wrote the Perushan Shir Shirim of the Vilna Gaon, which the Vilna Gaon said that a light came out of heaven when he wrote this parish of Shir Hashir in, 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 in Sarhoi. But, um, so Menachem Mendel Ushkov and Saadia, Menachem Mendel's son, and Nataneta, um, Israel of Shklov, of course, um, Moshe Shlomo of Tolchin, there were really uh, quite a few people, and Rechaim Volozhin, as we know from the introduction of uh, Yisrael of Shklov to his Pata Shulchan, he was the one who raised the money. He was also in charge of the kupa of the charity box for the land of Israel. So and when I say the charity box of all of Vilna, it's not just uh, in the in the yeshiva. So Rav Chaim was connected to um, to the what was going on, but he felt that his job was to build the yeshiva. He can't do everything in life, and since all the other guys <laughs> were doing that. So, you know, he felt comfortable. Um, and people would come to him and, and talk to him, you know, uh, about, uh, about the Yishuv and about whether they should make Aliyah or not. We have a story from Yisrael Ishklov. He, he, he suggested somebody speak to Reb Chaim and ask him what he thinks about, uh, about your coming here. It wasn't so easy. I was uh, always making Aliyah uh, during those times as as uh, we know. But we have a very interesting, I don't know if I have it here, very interesting Amira of Chaim Volozhin. Maybe I have it on the second page. Where Chaim Volozhin also, this is in the Shilto literature of Eliyahu Landau's copy. And um, yeah, I have it here in English. Um, I heard from our rabbi, I mean Reb Chaim, 
on the Pasuk, the verse, Naflavalotosiv Kumbitulat Israel, Amos chapter 9, she fell and will not rise again, the maiden of Israel. Our sages in the Gemara and Brachot interpreted this way She fell and will not fall anymore. Arise, O maiden of Israel. Said the Talmud says that in Israel, they made it more positive, that statement. Not that she won't rise anymore, but she fell and will not fall anymore. Arise, O maiden of Israel. And this means that the maiden of Israel is called falling. Just like the sukkah of David, also in the prophet Amos, is called falling, meaning the temple. This is an appropriate time. We're a day before Tisha B'Av. So it's, a, so it's the sukkah of David, which is called falling. For every day, she falls further and further, the daughter of Israel. And there is no day whose curse is less than the previous one. So the Talmud says. Therefore, she is referred to as the falling one. For she will continue to fall until she reaches the lowest level. And from there, she cannot fall anymore. And now we have reached the time of Arise, O Maiden, Israel. Shav Chaim says in his time, now we've reached this time because it can't get any worse. So we're, from here, we start to ascend. So I always say to Rav Chaim was not against what was happening with the, the, the other Talmudim. This was not a fight. I know there's some historians who want to say these were different opinions and they were strong. It was not a fight. It was a question of um, basically um, who's going to do what? I mean, all the Talmudim made Aliyah were great scholars. They spent most of their time studying Torah when they were not doing community work. So this was not an issue at all. All of them were scholars also steeped both in, in Halakha and Kabbalah. But um, Reb Chaim felt, if you build the yeshiva in Volozhin, you've got to build the yeshiva in Volozhin. You can't do both things at the same time. That's what I think. Just um, the top, let's call it the top five, if that's okay. The top five things that we don't know or didn't know about of Chaim Volozhin. I know your list uh, is a little longer, but, you know, maybe... Yeah. I'm going to look at my Hebrew list, because my Hebrew list... Yeah. Uh, first of all, some of them we already said. Yeah, but, but that so, we haven't said yet. Okay. Okay, something that we haven't uh, said yet. Let me see. About Chaim Volozhin. Yes. One thing I did mention, in the Shilta literature, he had a meditation room. Cheder Hitbodedut. It's mentioned in one or two places. Very unusual. He had a room where he would go, close him, himself up, maybe study Torah, maybe think about life. It's just uh, something very uh, uh, interesting. I want to uh, mention that. Um, we have no picture of Chaim Belozhin. Not just a photograph. We have no picture, no drawing. We have a drawing of the Gra. We have a, we have a, uh, a drawing of Aryeh Leib, <laughs> the Sagas Aryeh. We don't have anything of Reb Chaim. In my book, I wrote, we don't have a picture of Reb Chaim, so this book is instead. <laughs> Reb Chaim brings a great statement in the name of the Gra. Amar B'Shem Agra, he said the name of, Chaim, of uh, the Vilna Gon. Ikar ha'adam, the main avoda, the main thing of a human being in this world is to keep all the mitzvot, all the commandments between man and his fellow. He says, and actually he says uh, specifically not to hurt people. So, because, you know, people always think, okay, if I study Torah, 
But no, because Derech Eretz Kedma Torah, those mitzvot ben Adam lechevero, these are the ones which are, in a sense, the hardest. Because it's easy to put on two pairs of tefillin. <laughs> but it's much harder to treat people correctly and to be straight in business and uh, and things uh, like that. Another thing of Reb Chaim, he didn't like turning to Malachim. You know, in the Slichot service before um, between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, we have Machni Rachamim, we turn to the angels, asking them to help us in our tefillot. Sometimes says, you can't turn to angels, they have no free will, <laughs> so, what's the point? So he was against that. He was even a problem, I think he had a problem even in Shalom Aleichem, right? uh, where we say, Barchuni Shalom. What do you mean? In general, he felt that uh, angels, you know, they have no free will. If anything, it's the human being who is on the higher level. Yes, Tzadikim, Vatikzar Omar Vayakum Lach. Tzadikim, they can decide something and the heavens have to follow along. But in general, you don't ask Malachim to intervene in your day-to-day, uh, day-to-day issues. Um, uh, those are the things that come to mind. Uh, um, uh, there are little things too. By the way, he ate Kanedalach on Pesach <laughs> and Farfel, which means that he didn't have a problem with the Kabrochs, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> but there are a lot of interesting things about uh, it. wasn't a Hasid. It was not a Hasid. He did, as I said, he, there were members of his extended family who were. Uh, actually, maybe I'll mention one last thing. Please. Uh, with the Hasidim. One of the problems that Rav Chaim had with the Hasidim was the question of the relationship to what we call experiential or prophetic Kabbalah, which in the um, academic literature is referred to as ecstatic Kabbalah, which means techniques for reaching a direct connection with God. Rav Chaim felt that in our day, the only way to really try to have a, a divine experience with God is through the study of Torah. For him, that was the one unique vehicle. Even in prayer, we fill up our batteries by studying Torah. And then when we pray, we have this connection. But even that is through the merit of the study of the Torah. So Rav Chaim, the Torah is the main vehicle today for this connection. Once upon a time, there were Nevi'im. Once upon a time, you had the four who entered the Pardes, using special names. Rav Chaim wasn't sure that was a good idea in this day. He tells a story of his younger brother, Shlomo Zalman, who was a great, a saintly person. And Shlomo Zalman had a Magid who appeared to him, which in our literature seems to be an angelic voice who would teach him Torah. And he asked the Vilna Gon what was his opinion about this Magid. Vilna Gon said, tell your brother to shoot the Magid away. He says, what do you mean? Yosef Karo, the Machaber, the Shulchan Aruch. He had a Magid, wrote a whole book based on that Magid. He said, the Grat told me, well, that was 200 years ago, and that was living in the land of Israel. But today, we can't tell the difference between Hatev and Vahabar. We don't know the difference between the, the Dross and the Colonel, and therefore, it's better just to keep away from these things. This was the opinion in general of Rav Chaim, that he was against the idea of mystical experiences, which, of course, is a central theme in Hasidic uh, writings. The idea of the Rebbe is somebody who has a direct connection to God and they can tell you your spiritual level and what you're supposed to be doing and what is a good time for you to daven. So all these things um, 
Reb Chaim uh, tried to keep away from. He felt they were dangerous to the, that halacha creates a certain hierarchy and a certain regiment. And if a person wants a connection to God, it's not through techniques. It can only be through Torah. This, this has been absolutely fascinating. Just a, a little taste, I think, of uh, of, uh, of Chaim Belagin and um, encourage all our viewers and listeners to go online and read uh, Rabbi Dr. Shochat's articles and uh, pick up his, his book in Hebrew on Rechaim Belajan and uh, um, Dr. Shochat, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Tudar Aban, may we see in the comfort of Zion in Jerusalem. Amen. Thank you.